0: Mic check, one, two, three. Mic check, one, two, three. All right, Jeff, you ready for this? Yep, let's do it. Insights at Work podcast jingle, take one.
1: It's where you get your insights. Insights at Work.
0: Nailed it. Is this a joke? Is this guy for real?
1: Inspiring creativity in the workplace. That's what we're talking about today. This is the Insights at Work podcast.
0: Insights at Work podcast jingle, take 27.
1: It's about work. It's not about sports. Insights at work.
0: Oh, man, this is going to be a long day.
1: Let's dive in. I'm Jeff Livingston, and this is Insights at Work, the HR podcast that looks at what's happening in the HR world, takes your questions and studies the research to help HR experts move forward. It's prepared by HR experts for HR experts. In today's episode, we're chatting with Ken Hughes, YouTube thought leader and highly sought-after speaker on disruption, change, AI, and innovation. Calling in today all the way from Ireland, home of acclaimed actor Liam Neeson, who's played essentially the same role for the last 15 years. Whether it's a retired CIA operative, hell-bent on revenge, or a retired jewel thief, hell bent on revenge, or an Alaskan snowplow driver, hell bent on revenge. Well, you get the idea. Ken, welcome to the Insights at Work podcast. What are your thoughts on Ireland's national treasure, Mr. Liam
0: Neeson? I feel that I'm the younger, more attractive version, I think. (laughs) Uh, I think I'm the only person, maybe, as an Irish man who thinks, like, I've got teenage kids. I think if I was in one of his movies and they kidnap my kids, I'd probably just say, yeah, keep them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ken, maybe you too have a unique set of very special skills. So I'll be sure to stay on your good side today. I have never had so much fun researching a podcast before. You've got this amazing YouTube channel where you share quick videos about everything from consumer experience to employee experience to what we're talking about today, inspiring creativity in the workplace. In fact, I learned a new term when watching your TED talk, and that term is playologist. Now, most of us have a vocabulary of about 20,000 words. And since the beginning of the pandemic, because of all of the disruption we've seen, we've added 10,000 new words to our vocabulary. Now, think about that. That's half of what we're typically working with. Maybe playology is one of those new words. I know it is for me. So for those out there who might not know what it is, what's a playologist?
0: Yeah, um, a playologist is someone who uses play, like any ology, it's, it's an it's area of academic interest um, that uses play as a vehicle to expand what we're talking about today, instance, in the workplace, but also creativity, innovation, personal development. I use play in personal development work. So I, I've, I became fascinated by play. Again, I have teenage kids now, but they, they were obviously young. Um, and children have this innate curiosity with play. And the same with animals, even. Play is used to explore your environment, play is used to test boundaries, play is used to balance risk and reward. And um, unfortunately, in our modern society, probably dating back to the Industrial Revolution and the military and school systems, around the age of six and seven, we start to stop children using play and we introduce rules. So if you give a four or five-year-old a ball, they will just go crazy and kick it all against everything. But then suddenly we say to them, no, 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 um, there's goals and there's rules and there's whistles and there's the offside rule. No one understands that really, but there you go. Um, And so same with the, uh, an instrument if you give a, a kid a, music, a piano they'll just bang it and they'll make sounds but then suddenly we say no no there's <clears throat> there's musical notes and there's chords and you must do this and uh, and even you know the in english we use the word play to describe theater you go to see a play but even there it is a contract there is you know you you don't get to stand up in the middle of the audience and join in uh, you know and if you did the actors would be very surprised um so we have a version of play in modern society that isn't explorative it's it's within the box of rules that we formulate and if you jump all the way forward now to the workplace what we end up doing is we take and this is very much like ken robinson's very famous ted talk you know about why schools good creativity um we end up with a an employee ultimately who has gone through a kindergarten school university system and come out the other end with any form of curiosity play or mischief being wrung out of them and at some point we learn that play is the opposite of work and you probably can date back to the Protestant Reformation and, you know, where basically any kind of leisure was seen as bad and hard work was seen as good. And so we have ended up in this very, very negative situation where people are not encouraged to think outside uh, the lines. People are encouraged to do what work expects of them and not play. Now. As researchers, we understand that play is actually where the innovation lies. And so we get this really weird, hypocritical situation where we expect great things from our employees in terms of creativity and innovation. But then if we see them playing, we get very upset.
1: So Ken, it sounds like allowing oneself to play, whether in life or in the workplace, helps to expand boundaries and open oneself to new things. You have a talk called the Innovation Sludge, and you describe it as a time when maybe we're firing on two cylinders rather than four, or here in North America, while we'd be firing on four cylinders rather than eight. When I watched the video, I kept thinking about how so many of us might not be innovating because we're finding ourselves in a bit of a rut and we're not searching out those opportunities to be creative. We're seeing an increase in presenteeism and another new term called The Hidden Resignation, and that's really all about the worker sitting back and just accepting things and letting things happen. So let me ask you this. How have we gotten to this point? And in the workplace, what does creativity and innovation look like? Okay.
0: Uh, well, to me, I think, well, firstly, I mean, really simplistically, creativity is having these wonderful ideas and innovation is applying those ideas to some kind of product service or process. Right? So that, that's the kind of definitions, right? So, uh, you know, there's no point in having great ideas unless you can apply them. Uh, and there's no point in, in looking at processes and getting them better unless you're actually putting in new ideas into them. So um, people often, I think, mix up those two words a lot and they use them interchangeably. And that's not right. So, for instance, you can, you don't have to be very creative to have innovative applications so you can actually you know come up with new ways of doing things new ways of addressing business models and new solutions without being particularly creative um but then creative people tend to look at the world very very differently and it's difficult to get step change innovation unless you really inject some significant creativity into it um the innovation sludge uh term that you bring up there um so i've been looking at the captive economy for the last two years so this is the world that we lived in for the last two years. So business were really held in captive. And when the pandemic kicked off, I just became really, I'm a behavioralist. That's what I am. I'm, I'm fascinated by human behavior, by the way the mind works, by social, by anthropology, by, by cyber behaviorism, how we live our lives online, how that impacts our physical day to day and, you know, just fascinated with humans. And so for me, I was probably one of the only people in the pandemic that woke up every morning rubbing his hands with glee, thinking like, oh, what's going to happen today? So watching everything that we know fall apart, watching how we work, how we live, uh, how society functions economically, politically, technically, you know, just what the changes were fascinating to me. So I, I've had a great last two years uh, from a research point of view. And so one of the first things I did was started looking at the psychology of captivity to so the psychology of incarceration, the psychology of slavery, the psychology of 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 when you remove someone's freedoms, what happens. And from an employee perspective, I became very interested in the idea that we were, you know, okay, we were taking people out of the office and we were making them work from home. That's pretty simple. But then the, the knock-on effects of that long-term are that you're, you're closing down people's stimulus. Well, you conducted an experiment and it's pretty famous.
1: And that's what prompted your TED talk. In this experiment, you injected stimulus into your daily routine. And it had some amazing effects. Ken, can you talk a bit about your really, really interesting experiment?
0: So I turned 47 years ago. Quick math will give you my current age. Um, and having a little midlife crisis taught, right? What will I do with my 40th year? And I was feeling a little bit kind of stuck in the routine of life. And, and so I decided on the 1st of January that year to do something new that day that I'd never, ever done before. And then i started thinking along I, I wonder how long i could keep that going and so i decided like any stupid male ego uh thought to to bite off more than i can chew and i thought i'd do a year i'll do a full year where 365 days in a row i will do something new every single day something that i'd never ever done before had to be brand new uh, and in that surely i would awaken some kind of creative spark or our kind of new way of looking at the world and so i set off and and what quickly became apparent is that if I didn't put something in the journal by midnight, I failed the experiment regardless. Even if you missed a day, that was it, the whole thing was gone. So there's kind of this pressure that you have to keep going. And I discovered a magnificent um, kind of beautiful thing that exists in the world of, you know, we say no to so many things. We go around with our eyes closed so many times. We, we do the same thing every day. We live in the same places. We surround ourselves with the same people. And so actively searching for the new, gave me a whole new perspective on life. I And the, the TED talk is there, so your listeners can go off and watch the TED, TED talk in their own time. But that reality stayed with me forever. So the, the, the idea of maximizing your hours, your days, always something new, always a new way of doing something. Uh, and there's always new ways of looking at the world, even surrounding your own house right now, your own office right now, there are things you could do differently. And when I came back to the pandemic, I realized that the average worker, let's say, uh, the average employee is is now surrounded by the same stimulus continuously. So because you don't travel to work to and from because you don't go to conferences or networking, and yes, we had virtual stuff and that was great, but you were, you were limiting your stimulus in the top of the funnel, basically. So, you know, visually, hourly, orally, all the stimulus that comes in every single day, thousands and thousands and thousands of stimulus come into your brain every day, they were being limited. And the ones that you were getting were being routinely repeated. You were surrounded by the same people, probably your immediate family and um, you were going nowhere. There was no travel. Um, and so what requires our creative brain, and this is the, the kind of the gym analogy. I'm really surprised that at people in, in the corporate world that expect to, to be creative walking into a meeting that requires it. So it's kind of like a muscle, your brain, you have to, you have to work the muscle to get it to be this wonderful creative thing. So you can't just expect to walk into a brainstorming meeting. We do this all the time, you know? Someone gives you a pad of post-it notes and they say, all right, let's stick our ideas on the wall. And you're suddenly to become this amazingly creative person who's gonna have all this flood of ideas in the next hour because it's a workshop. That's not the way creativity works at all. You've got to really train that muscle. So I did that for a year, I trained the muscle and actually afterwards I became really more creative in my writing, in my businesses, in my personal relationships, and it had a huge effect on my life now the the pandemic took all that away from people. so what we've ended up with and this is what I call it the innovation sludge. You're kind of wading through. you're trying to get there. The companies still expect of you. We still want to be innovative. we want to be agile, we want to have the new. We understand it's important. The world is changing, blah blah blah. But the people themselves, inside the innovation bus, they are firing, as you said, on way less cylinders than they used to, simply because the stimulus that that they're used to having those accidental conversations that you have on the underground or in an airport lounge, or, you know, they're all stimulus that go in and and suddenly it's very subconscious now, but it does challenge the way you think. The people that you meet accidentally often challenge your status quo. And without any of that, what we've got to is two years of thinking by yourself, by yourself, surrounded by the same team members. Um, And that's also back to your point about what may be driving the great resignation, because people are tired of the same people. I just want to see new faces. And so people are moving on. And people think, oh, there's something wrong with this company. But actually, what it might be is something's wrong with themselves.
1: So did you find before you undertook your experiment, your 365-day journey, were you languishing yourself like so many of us are,
0: maybe right now? Uh, no. So if I think back to it, I didn't do the experiment because of that. But looking back on it, the answer is yes, I was. So how do you know? you know, how languishy you are from the outside, unless you have the hindsight to look back on yourself. So I think um, I was was doing well, business was going well, life was going well, I was tootling along, I was on the hamster wheel, it was fine. But until actually I challenged myself to think, well, actually, can you take fine and can you make it fantastic? And can you do that every day? Can you bring the, and, and, and a bit like, when you start exercising you know when you st- when you haven't been exercising in the gym for a while and you go back to that for a few months or years even the first few weeks are hard but then there comes a moment where in training of anything the energy of putting into training you seem to need to get more out of your training than you do getting putting it in and this, this, the same thing happens for creativity there comes a point where the experiment wasn't hard at all and you started to wake up every morning rubbing your hands together thinking like what can i do today and and what joy can i find and there is there was an amazing amount of joy a huge amount of play a lot of mischief a lot of risk someone i mean people often ask me things about that experiment i still talk about it, you know in, in the corporate world all the time um and they always want to know the big things you did you know and of course yeah you do the big things the naked bungee jumping the skydiving you know they're all the big things but it's the small things that matter it's the, it's the wet wednesday That you're stuck in your office, that you have to find something to do in a space that you've always been in, uh, surrounded by people that you've always been in. You've got to find something new that you've never done before. That's the challenge. And once you start accepting that challenge and doing things differently, then, then you awaken. And so, and, and you take that and you carry that forward into every business problem, every interaction with people. And all you're looking for is, is there another angle here? And the more you train your brain to do that with the silly things, with the small things, when it comes to the big things, when it comes to big business problems, when it comes to personal relationship issues, you're always open to the other angle. It just opens the mind. And so what I was fascinated by with that personal experiment was that I had never, I would never have described myself as a closed minded person. I was always, I would have always ticked the open minded box if I was filling out a form. But I realized during the experiment that actually we all are. We're so we. with the word no comes out of our mouth. Often, far faster. When you're asked, "Oh, are you around to do this?" "Oh, I am," but look, I've got to pick up the kids from soccer, or I've got to meet, or I've got to, oh, got to work late. And but actually, when you look at it, you've got time for everything. And when you start to move things around, and when you start to stretch your uh, your capabilities. It's a bit like love, you know. You 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 love you love your wife or husband. You have children. Well, then you love them too. There wasn't. It doesn't turn out to be a finite amount of love that wasn't stretchable. Same thing with creativity. Same thing with uh, with innovation. Um, there's it. There's time, and there's way more space in your brain than you think, uh, for innovation. And as I said, it's a muscle. You got to train that. You got to train it outside the office. You got to train it in everyday life, uh, and that's where the joy of life comes from. You know, employees who are happier stay longer. Retention is higher absenteeism is lower because people enjoy their their jobs and you can't make someone enjoy their job unfortunately but if we can open people's minds and get them into a, you know a place where they're excited about or they, the work is exciting and they see new opportunities they will obviously stay and again go back to the great resignation point that's what's happening people are just jaded over the last two years and they're blaming their employer as opposed to blaming themselves
1: Ken, you're absolutely right. We say no all of the time. And having a seven-year-old daughter at home, well, I probably say no more than most. Now, you spent a year saying yes. What new experience that you said yes to might have seemed small at the time, but when you look back, had a huge and unexpected impact
0: on you? Okay, take one. I mean, there's, there's obviously 365 examples. <laughs> um, I mean, and by the way, the experiment was was good. It was bad. It rewired me forever. Uh, I was married that year and I got divorced two years later. So there was negative impacts to that experiment as well, because you started to look at all the aspects of your life and you started to challenge them. And, you know, there, there was there was other areas of my life that I wanted to challenge that I hadn't even thought I needed to challenge. Um, There was one, I think, and again, it's quite a simple one to do with my daughter. So she was actually, she was around your, your, your kid's age, seven, eight at the time. And she was painting her toenails. And I was watching her and I just took my socks off. And I thought, here, paint mine there too as well. And so she painted one, each toe a different color as a seven-year-old would. And I started laughing, thinking like, God, it looks my, my toes are like Smarties. And I put my socks back on and I thought, wow, how did I get to be like 40? How did 40 years go by? And no one's ever painted my toenails. It seems a bit mad. Um, and that was kind of an interesting thought. I thought, well, how many times have I been around nail painting? Probably hundreds. I don't know, I had a sister, I had friends, you know, wow. And I never had it happen. And then I went to bed and I woke up the next morning. Of course, I'd forgotten that she had took, painted my toenails. I swung my legs out of bed and started laughing because every morning I'd look at these crazy M&M toes, you know, and I put my socks back on I go about my day. And then at the end of the day, I would take my socks off and I'd laugh again. I thought, this is hilarious. And so for two weeks, every single morning, every single evening, I had, I had this little laugh moment because I can always forgotten they were painted and to my to me that was the whole purpose of the experiment that you could change the smallest of of inputs but it would have a significant output and for me i realized that there was joy in the small things And then i remember bringing my kids to the, to the pool at that time and i of course had forgotten that i'm i'm, I'm you know I'm, <laughs> I'm undressing in the mail changing with two little kids and you know i'm getting these weird looks from other men and i, I started thinking like wow well, yeah and now i'm challenging the system now I'm challenging prejudices, and I'm challenging, you know, what what people think of me, and I'm thinking like, okay, I don't need to explain myself, do I? Do I? You know, like this idea of challenging just the norm, you know, and, and having fun with it, which is important. You know, a lot of HR and employee experience is heavy stuff, and fun seems to have got wrong. And if we learned anything the last two years, it hasn't been fun. So, you know. We sh- we have to have fun because because if we're having fun and if we're smiling and if we're laughing and if we're f- then we're feeling something and when you feel something that's how connection is formed whether it's connected to colleagues whether it's connected to the brand you're working in and so when work isn't fun and this is back to our playology opening remarks um things get just routine and basically routine is the enemy of innovation and creativity.
1: Can it sounds like your daughter inspired some creativity in you during your experiment? How did you? inspire creativity in others.
0: Yeah, and that was completely accidentally, by the way, because I, I did this experiment for myself. This wasn't a keynote speech, you know, it became one afterwards, but it wasn't a TED talk, again it became one afterwards. But um I was doing it for me and around. I think march or april four months in i removed myself from social media because even there i found that i was kind of performing like a monkey for an audience because i started started to snowball people were interested in what i was doing and they realized ken would never say no to anything (laughs) they would like you know they would prompt me with oh here's what you could do today And, and so i was kind of performing for them and i thought hang on this wasn't the point of the experiment here the point was for me so i backed off that But yes, it had a huge implication on it. So all my friends and family got involved a little bit because it's difficult to watch someone do this without getting it's infectious. You know, when people are getting involved and to this day, because that Ted talk and by the way, the Ted talk never got dropped onto the Ted platform, which is interesting. Sadly for me, I was hoping it would. But it's, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people that have watched it, it still has its own little audience and every, you know, I, I haven't ever, I've never marketed it. I've never got, but you know, it finds people when it needs to find people. It's a lovely little, little thing. And not a week or month goes by where I don't get a message from somewhere in the world that it's touched at the right time. It's like a book. So, you know, sometimes you you read a book and sometimes a book seems to find you at the right time in a crossroads and it sets you off maybe on a certain way. The talk sometimes finds people like that. Now lots of people just find it and think it's fun. Lots of people, you know, try it for a week or whatever. But it finds some people at certain times and changes their lives, which is really kind of cool, completely accidentally, you know. Uh, And I've yet to ever perform that speech with a live audience, because obviously it's a great live speech. Uh, where I challenge people and I challenge uh, employees in terms of what they think they're capable of. and We break arrows with our neck and walk on fire and you know all those mad things. There's a big workshop to do with it. But I'm yet to ever do one of those uh, sessions without someone coming up to me afterwards and just really, you know, you can see it in their eyes that you've unlocked something. Uh, and that's that's joyous. This is the best part of my job, you know, when you stand on stage and you you inspire someone. Everyone else has had a good time, but there's always one or two people where it's, it's hit a chord, maybe for whatever reason, you know, whatever's going on in their lives, usually personally, um, and they realize, yeah, I needed to kick up the ass here.
1: You know, Ken, talking about getting that kick in the butt, I think we all believe that the average is around sixty-six days or two months for new behavior to become second nature in our routine. How long did it take to see a shift in your perspective so that you were always starting to embrace and looking for new ways to be creative or new ways to let that creativity into your life?
0: Yeah, I I would say three months for me, I think. I think I remember kind of around the 90-day, 100-day mark, literally kind of feeling the click. You can't even feel it physically inside of you, you know. The, the change in perception, the kind of hunger for now and I put artificial pressures on myself, but by having that midnight um, limit of having to have written something down by midnight was a pressure and so I didn't walk past any notice board without stopping and seeing what I could do and I, you know, I ended up crazy things, crazy places. Ultimately, it's about just seeing the opportunity in the everyday and understanding that all around you at every given moment there are opportunities to connect with people there are opportunities to deepen relationships there are opportunities to try things you've never tried before and that until you start doing that how will you know how far you can push yourself i I remember i was at a yoga retreat once and the yoga teacher had us in this particular warrior pose and she was pushing us as far as she could and she couldn't so bend forward and you know everyone in the room is at different levels of course everyone's different body shapes and everyone's got a different center of gravity and so so she said, you know, you're each going to have to find your own point here, but there'll be a point where you all fall over. I want you to find near that point, please. So we're all kind of going as far as we can, and just wobbling, wobbling. And, and she said, right now, find the edge, find the very edge where, you know, one little bit more, you'll fall over. So we all do that. And then she said, right now that you're there, I want you to fall over. So go, go, go the whole way. And then as we all, you know, lent in to go fall over, and we did. But we've all realized that there was another there was another five percent between the place that you thought you were going to fall over and the place you did fall over. And in that, for me, there was just a mind-blowing moment where we all think that we've done enough or we all think we've gone as far as we can. But actually, when you lean into absolute risk, when you think, okay, look, I'm going to fall over, so it doesn't actually matter. You actually had a little bit more to to of of safe space before you did. And so how much do we hold back in our personal relationships, in our employee, motivation, in all that kind of area, you know, are we giving it our maximum effort? And I don't think we are.
1: Can I keep thinking to myself, are we forcing people to be creative? How fair is it to ask people to be creative in the workplace? I mean, what are your thoughts on the corporate retreat?
0: <laughs> Creativity doesn't really ever get forced. You know, nobody sits down and let's, let's say go go to the extreme of the creative arts. Nobody sits down and writes a play are an opera or paints a picture under pressure of a four hour deadline and comes up with a masterpiece. That's just not the way creativity works. You know, you can bang out a PowerPoint presentation probably in a few hours, but, but creativity needs time. You know, it needs to filter and, and, and brew. And so sometimes when I'm writing a piece, I have an idea for a blog or I have an idea for a, a, a thought leadership piece and I write a version of it and I put it away again. And I go for a walk. So I come back to it back and forth, back and forth over maybe weeks. For I kind of think it's ready for maybe what it could be, you know, um, and for, unfortunately, in the corporate world, we kind of make our people jump through hoops of, of deadlines and and then it's kind of some kind of forced creativity where, you know, you must be creative now. This is the brainstorming workshop. Um, so I think we need to give time. And again, going back to male ego, I think men want the deadline. They want the kind of thing, whereas women generally are more happier with it will emerge, it will form. Definitely getting out of the routine and getting away from the office is important. Uh, mixing with new people that you maybe otherwise wouldn't mix it usually is very important. Uh, I mean, Steve Jobs famously designed the Apple office uh, in, in its second or third design with very thin corridors that kept meeting each other, forcing people to meet in the corridor. And so basically, you know, there was there was little kind of um, standing spaces off the corridors, but they were designed in a way that you would bump into people and then conversations may happen. And that's the way, you know, that's the way innovation gets kicked off. Um, And that was a strategic decision. I I love that in architecture. Um, So I'm a fan of them for those things. But then there's also a very 1980s, 1990s, let's all go paintballing and hit each other model, which is so broken, you know, which is this forced, forced fun and no one really wants to be there. And, and so, I mean, asking your employees what they want and how they want to spend those or teach is interesting. So we're, you know, we're, we're heading into a big health and wellness trend globally. People don't want to go drinking and and um and shoot, shoot each other with paintball anymore and, and have these ridiculous team building tasks that are kind of, you know, eh, they're interesting, but they're not great. And um, People do want to come away from those things with something personal themselves having challenged themselves personally. And so, I mean, I, I run those and, and I'm often invited in on them on behalf of the corporation to help them with those retreats. And that's where we do the fire walking and the glass walking. And so we send people home with a sense of empowerment, something that they've achieved they never would have thought they were capable of. And we've challenged their norms and that's that's enough, you know, challenge their norms and send them home. And um, so, no, I am a believer of it, but it needs to be done much better. It needs to be a bit more authentic and and less kind of pushy.
1: I think when we're talking about increasing resiliency and introducing creativity into an organization, recruitment is an important part of this. And you've got a blog called Releasing Your Inner Chaos Ninja. And there's a focus on recruitment in that blog. Can you fill us in on the concept of that inner chaos ninja?
0: Netflix um, have a very famous phrase called the chaos monkey. And they wrote chaos into their servers, into their systems. To say well what would happen if the whole system goes belly up you know and so they kind of put bugs into the system on purpose to go crazy in the system to see that when those bugs brought the system down were all their parallel systems that were there designed to keep the thing going going and so introducing chaos on purpose to see what would happen basically and i thought to myself ooh, i like that i didn't like the word chaos monkey because monkeys seem a bit crazy um, so I thought chaos ninjas, let's 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 recruit chaos ninjas, right? Let's recruit people into the companies that don't fit our corporate culture. Because interestingly, in the, in the interview what often happens is the candidate leaves the room or the screen and the interviewing panel turns to each other. And the first question they'll ask is, yeah, they seem to match all the criteria, but does she meet our corporate culture? How will she fit in here? And if the answer is she will meet it perfectly, we hire her. Now, the problem with that is that we're hiring the same person again and again and again. So we're, we have a cookie cutter approach to recruitment, which then again has one type of thinking, one type of creative analysis for our problems. What we need to do is actively think, does this person fit into our corporate culture? No, they don't at all. Excellent. Let's hire them. Uh, and so instead of looking for, I remember I joined um, uh, Anderson Consulting, well, Accenture now, out of university. And I remember on the first day looking around the room at the kind of seven or eight of us who had been recruited to the strategy division at the time and thinking like, good God, we're like robots. As in, we're all kind of the same. We all have the same hobbies. We all have the same interests. We all have the, certainly had the same grades. And I thought like, oh my God, they're just recruiting a, like a... And I, I only lasted nine months in that company actually, because that was the way the company was run. And, and you know, again, you had the same minds working on the same business problems all the time. That was never going to end well. Uh, and so I think from a chaos point of view, what you need to learn as a leader and as a team manager, is perhaps the people that don't seem to fit should be encouraged to stay. The people that don't seem to fit from a recruitment point of view, maybe you should take a risk on. And back to our conversation on creativity, maybe we should start recruiting just creative people, regardless of their qualifications university-wise. Maybe we should just look for people who who have a different way of looking at the world, photographers and artists and musicians and... Because if you, one of my favorite things to do at big conferences is like with a thousand people in the room is to ask how many people here play an instrument, how many people here paint and draw on a regular basis. And the answers are always scary, you know, 10%, 5% of the room. It's because we're very logical people. That's the corporate world. That's a problem. So um, yeah, from a diversity point, of view, don't just look at gender, age and, and race, look at the type of people that we're recruiting and maybe just go out in a limb and recruit some crazy chaos ninjas.
1: You know what I love about your term, the chaos ninja and your work behind it, it's that It's all about building this corporate culture that is innovative and creative and resilient for when chaos is going to happen so they can handle it. So they've got those differing perspectives and they've got differing skill sets. So when chaos happens, because we all know it does, as we've seen in the last couple of years, they're ready to tackle that chaos. We have a ton of new things being thrown at us, new chaos, new disruption, especially with so many of us returning to the office. What tips do you have for listeners and HR professionals for what's about to come?
0: I was on a beach with my kids over the summer, and there was this sign saying, beware riptides. And the lifeguards were trying to explain to my kids the danger of a riptide. And a riptide will carry you straight out to sea. And what you start to do as a swimmer is you immediately try and get back to the shore because you're panicked. You're getting drifted away and you start to swim against the current. Now, what you're trying to do is trying to get back to where you were, because that sounds safe. Now, the ocean, unfortunately, is stronger than you. So it'll just tire you out and you'd eventually die or get carried out anyway. So what you're supposed to do is swim sideways. You swim sideways out of the current. And then as soon as you're out of this rip current, you swim back to the shore. Now, the courage and vulnerability it takes to swim in a different direction than your survival, unfortunately, is done by very few people, which is why they have to train it and explain it to people. And in business and during the pandemic, I was fascinated by this because here we all were working from home, which is our new reality. But we were all paranoid about trying to swim back to the shore. Trying to do the work in the same way, trying to achieve the same deadlines, trying to, but we weren't in the same place. We were doing, we were now in a different place. So the courage to swim off in a different direction, basically, and that only comes from your leaders in your, in your organization. I feel too, that we have to be allowed to move in directions that don't feel intuitively right, but they may be right. And that's explorative And that's back to our conversation around play and risk. We have to be allowed push boundaries and see what happens and see, do we have the other 5% before we fall? If we keep trying to get back to where we are, then it's game over, you know?
1: Ken, I have had such a great time today. What a great conversation. Is there anything that we haven't talked about? Anything impactful that you'd like to share?
0: coming out of the pandemic, we're all yearning reconnection. Okay, We're reconnecting with self, reconnecting with society, with our teams, with our our family, with our friends. And so I became interested in this idea of of customer lifetime value and employee lifetime value and this idea that we expect our employees to be thankful that they have a job and we expect our customers to be with us all the time from a brand loyalty point of view, but we do very little in terms of the investment in that relationship and we challenge organisations then with, well, are we doing enough to have so to explain the Great Resignation, basically, like, are we doing enough to connect with our employees in a relationship way? Yes, they do their work and they get paid for it, but that's just the hygiene factor. Are we doing the work as the employer? I don't think we are. I think we just expect them to be happy that they, they have a they have a job, you know, and that's what's fueling a lot of the Great Resignation too. When people stood back from it, and they thought, well, do I feel an emotional connection to this business, to this team? The answer was no. It's a very kind of authentic, empathetic space. And again, we're learning to lead with emotional intelligence as opposed to IQ. So it's EQ over IQ, and that works really interesting. So doing a lot of great work with HR directors all over the world on, on just challenging the norm of how we, how we you know, lead and motivate people. And coming out of the pandemic, people are wide open for attachment. They are open for new ways. They're looking for new, uh, new kind of ways to satisfy themselves. Um, and so, yeah, it's a great time to be, to be working with people.
1: Awesome. Well, let's hope that you're open to sharing just a bit more about your personal life. We always wrap up the podcast with our guest list of firsts and favorites. You ready to
0: do this, Ken? No. Wow. Okay. I'm bad at these kind of things. Okay, go. Ken Hughes, what is the first car that you owned? First car I owned was a Fiat Bambino 126 that my dad bought for me when I was 12, and we cut the roof off with a disc to make it a, a one-way convertible. I used to drive it up and down our cul-de-sac with 10-year-old children in it illegally. Thinking back on it, it a health and safety disaster—like <laughs> 12-year-old driving a car up and down a cul-de-sac—but it was a great little car. Well, Ken, I'm sure
1: you knew this one was coming. What is your favorite Liam Neeson movie?
0: You see, that's you're assuming I watched them because I'm Irish. Uh, I would probably have to go political on this and say Michael Collins. Uh, he played Michael Collins in that very famous movie, and uh, I have family on that side of the equation. And so, yeah, I think he, he's his his um, his way of playing Michael Collins was was amazing. So, yeah, that would be my favorite.
1: And awesome. his, kid, his kids
0: weren't kidnapped at all in that movie. <laughs>
1: He, he wasn't hell-bent on revenge in that movie. No,
0: he wasn't. Well, he, he was hell-bent on overthrowing an <laughs> occupying force, all right?
1: Ken, what was the first job you had?
0: First job I had, um, I well, it depends. Uh, entrepreneurially, I stole all my mother's magazines, apparently, when I was three, put them in my little tractor and trailer, and cycled around the park, selling them to other mothers for a penny, Uh thinking that this was great and my mother wouldn't notice all the magazines missing. Uh, So I was always an entrepreneur when I was a kid, loved that. My first proper job actually employed um, was, ooh, what was I? Uh, I worked in a uh, a chipper, uh, you know, a takeaway diner, making burgers and fries every summer for three years. Um, And I've never eaten burgers since.
1: (laughs) Uh, What's the first concert that you attended?
0: First concert that I attended? first big one was Prince. Prince came to the stadium locally and we all went to see him. Uh, no one really knew who he was or what he was up to. And so in Ireland, we have this kind of, so I remember when Prince came and we had our U2 at the times of the eighties, you know, U2 were big and they were ours. Of course. And it was, here was this weird American guy coming over thinking he could fit a stadium. So I think he ended up with like a big stadium. He was going, yeah, who are you? Uh, we don't really know who you are. I, think he, I don't think he enjoyed the gig much. And last question,
1: Ken, what is your Favourite piece of advice that you'd give to a young professional just starting out?
0: I would say, oh yeah, good one, seek less advice I think would be my advice. I think people all all kind of want to know they're doing it right and they seek advice overly so to make sure they're doing it right and I think we've we've got to where we are now by doing what we did and actually if we're going to shape the future properly you're better off doing something new. So actually I would say use your gut more than you trust you know because i think younger people don't trust their guts because they assume oh well you know these people are more experienced than me these people have done it before they must know but actually i think often your that younger gut has an energy about it that has been forgotten by the older generations Uh, and so yeah lean into to play and mischief and risk and the energy that youth has automatically on its side about those things so be that chaos ninja be the chaos ninja, yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, Ken, what a great way to wrap up a podcast on creativity and innovation. I have taken so many notes and it's just been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the Insights at Work podcast.
0: Jeff, it was an absolute pleasure. I haven't enjoyed one of this for a long time. Good questions. See ya.
1: And with that, it looks like we've run out of racetrack. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. If you've enjoyed it, please share it with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit from it as well. If you find the Insights Outwork podcast worthy, please go on to iTunes and give us a cool rating with a nice review. We certainly appreciate it. And if there's something that you would like me to discuss around this big world of HR and all things business, give me a shout. You know how to reach me on social media or through LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay healthy and be kind. We'll see you soon on the next episode of the Insights at Work podcast.